the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Feminine. We have got a show for you today. Uh, there is no adjective to describe it. Everybody knows what's happening. There was a leak this week. First time ever from SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, leaked a decision as to what they're going to be doing. It sounds like it was maybe something intentional. Maybe they're just floating a balloon to see what how it would float and sending out a balloon to see how it would float. And there's been a whole hue and outcry and backlashes and everything. So... Of course, with everything else, especially something like this, Judaism has what to talk about. So we're going to be talking about abortion. In this half hour, we will be speaking with Rabbanit Adina Berkowitz, who has written a piece on it for the Turo Law Review and is a, an expert in the subject of halacha and abortion. In the second half of the show, we will be broadcasting a press conference with the State Attorney General Dana Nessel of the ramifications of what happens if Roe v. Wade is overturned because of Safira with the counting of the Omer period. We were state of quasi morning. We will have no music this time. We don't have any time, but we will be featuring insights into the portion of Emmer, which is found in the book of Leviticus and an awesome story all the way at the end. You'll want to see you. This is one of those stories that's just like, whoa. So, but before we do anything else, Let's go right to the news. Two terrorists wielding axes killed three people and injured four in a park in the West Bank town of Elad. Police know who the attackers are and are searching for them. In anti-Semitic incidences, a Hasidic man in Antwerp, this is a story of dog of man bites dog, a Hasidic man in Antwerp, Belgium, was attacked by an anti-Semite. The Hasid tackled the attacker and held him down until police arrived and arrested the attacker. Go for it. A synagogue in Portland, Oregon, was set on fire, and anti-Semitic graffiti was spray-painted on the building. The fire was put out before any damage could occur. A bomb threat was called into the JCC in Albany, New York. No bomb was found. And some good news, Israel stopped COVID tests for people going to and leaving Israel. Israel hit an all-time low of 450 COVID patients in the hospital. That's the lowest since it's been since March of 2020. And finally, Israel's unemployment rate hit a 50-year low of 3.7%. There are 150,000 job openings in Israel in a variety of sectors. And you might just want to go fill one. You could check it out. And that's the news. 
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Hey, Shulton here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Rabbinit Adina Berkowitz. Everybody knows what's going on with the news, unless you've been living in a cave. The uh, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, leaked a it's, uh, upcoming decision about an overturning of Roe v. Wade, and this has spurned all kinds of discussions among like everybody and everybody's uncle as to what now. And so, of course, then Halacha has been talking about such things. Jews have been talking about such, such things for 3,300 years. And we would thank you so much, Adina, for coming on. Oh, wonderful to be with you. Okay, there is an old joke, and it says it's a good thing to it says in the Talmud to start with a joke. So there's a joke where there's a a uh, panel discussion, a rabbi, a minister, and a and a and a Catholic priest. And the topic of discussion is when does life begin? And the Catholic priest says that life begins at conception, and the Baptist minister says life begins at birth and the rabbi says life begins when the kids move out of the house okay yes, yes everybody it's, it's, it's old but all all kidding is that this is a serious topic now before we go into the thing you're you've counseled lots and lots and lots of people and have you ever had to tell a woman listen in your situation i think it would be best to terminate your pregnancy? Well, I I have counseled people who um, have faced um, deep challenges, um, having gone through just sort of routine, pre, uh, you know, uh, genetic testing, and uh, and um, on the one hand, you know, finding out their carriers. But I do remember a case of someone who found out she was about. Um, almost five months pregnant, and she found out that um, the uh, fetus child, unborn child that she was carrying, had severe, severe uh, disabilities that were going to uh, a condition where essentially like the former had a brain, and there were, there were other, uh, it was a while ago, I don't remember all the particulars, but you're born without uh, certain limbs, it, it just was, it was just terrible. And the determination of, you know, at the time I said to her, you know, go, go get a stock, which is a uh, talk specifically to your rabbi about this. Uh, but what we went over was what, when we look at what the Jewish, the, the Jewish, you know, again, you know, I thought you were going to say two Jews for the opinion. There are a variety of approaches to the issue of, uh, abortion within Jewish tradition, uh, not just within the non-Orthodox world, but within the Orthodox world. And the overriding factor, it's not to me a question, and this is what I was discussing with her, it's not is Judaism uh, pro-choice or pro-life. Judaism and the way the rabbis have approached it are pro-woman, pro-mother. And the determination here is what is the impact on a on a woman's life, her health, her well-being, and as we've seen even with the Jewish legal tradition, how that impacts on her mental health. Um, so that those were the issues. It's not a ma- It wasn't a matter of the analysis of that the baby to be born would have no quality of life because this Rabbi Emanuel Jacobovitz, the late um, chief rabbi of the British Empire, once said, you know, Life is of infinitesimal value, and 
how can we decide that? The question, though, is what is the impact of this pregnancy and potential birth on the mother's well-being, her health, her life, and her mental health? And that is different than when we look at just in terms of abortion on demand. Uh, what we, you know, the way way it's set up in this country in Israel is a little bit different. So that from the get-go, the end result might be the same, but the analysis is coming from a different place. Okay, so would it be correct that uh, Dina Burke was to say that, according to uh, Jewish law, Jews would therefore be neither pro-choice or pro-life? Well, the the reason to be pro-choice is uh, because of the right for us to practice our religion uh, under the you know the Constitution. Because it gets very tricky. Our Jewish tradition and the rabbis are unanimous in the idea that life does not, as we under define life, begins at conception. We might say that once a child is conceived, that there is a neshama that's in the soul. But we don't say right from the get-go uh, that there's a life there. Um, the question is, what is the consideration for ending potential life? And when does potential life become, uh, the way the Supreme Court originally defined it, was, um, you know, uh, it's not just in Roe versus Wade, but there was another case, uh, the Casey case, which I don't want to get too technical, but basically looked at the issue of viability, the ability to live outside the womb. And the rabbis, and you know, discussed this thousands of years ago. That, for example, suppose um, you know, can you rescue someone on Shabbat um, where they're pregnant, right? And the issue would be, and they say, well, violate Shabbat so that there'll there'll be a future here. So that again, it's not it's not clear cut. However, the the problem is. And that's kind of the devil is in the details, is, is what happens if you say, you know, we're, we are opposed, we, Jewish tradition says you can approach it this way, but you're living in a state which says abortion is not allowed at all uh, because we view life beginning at conception. So okay, with, you're, as you're, Orthodox Jews... Let, let, me, let me jump in because there's a bunch of things going on over here. Let's, let's back a little bit. Let's get a little bit more basic. <clears throat> Where in the Bible does it talk about abortion? Right. So the only, it's interesting you say that, the only source that we have that that somewhat kind of, uh, that it's connected to it, it's not, it's not really about abortion, but rather um, it's a source in the uh, Shemot, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 21, in which it, it seems to uh, define for us regarding the personhood of the fetus, because it talks about two men are getting into a fight. One of them pushes a pregnant woman, and she miscarries. If no other damage uh, ensues, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible says, the one responsible is fined according to what the husband can exact from him. But if other damages ensue, right, the penalty then is life for life. So the question is, what does that mean? So it seems that as long as there's no fatal injury to the woman following her, mar- her miscarriage, then the inflictor only needs to compensate the husband financially for the loss of the fetus. So it would seem then that the fetus is then seen as possessing like a monetary value, which makes one what they call a more liable in tort, meaning it's not a, it's not a capital crime. And we find that elucidated and explained later, um, where, where another source says no other damage refers to the woman, and the one responsible shall be fine refers to compensation for the loss of the fetus. So that's the only place in the, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, that we see a discussion that would seem to then indicate that if someone causes a miscarriage, it's not a capital crime, therefore we, we're not considering the fetus as, as a person. So that's... Perfect, perfect. Exactly what we're looking for now. But pro-choice people will say there's something called fetal rights. Does Judaism recognize any rights to the fetus? Because we're not, like you said before, we're not pro-life in that a person can just decide, I don't feel like being pregnant today. Right. So, So it's interesting because we find in rabbinic literature in the Talmud, 
will find, for example, a passage that describes a fetus as literally kind of the thigh of the mother connected. Um, and the rabbis will determine, like, during the first 40 days, the fetus is described as, as, uh, as like, near, near water. But although the fetus is not a person, as the rabbis see it, will say, in a juridical sense, because it represents potential life, then the question becomes as a balancing act of who, who has priority here. So, that, so it's, we see that brought out in a famous discussion regarding when a woman, if she's having difficulty in labor, um, in this sort in the Mishnah, which is part of the Jewish legal tradition, the rabbinic discussion, um, it says that if her life is being threatened, literally, the fetus could be dismembered. But once sort of crowning takes place, once she's like in labor, then essentially how do you substitute one life for another? So the, the, the issue really is, is that within Jewish tradition, it's a very nuanced approach. And that just to kind of say, well, there's, you know, a right to life, or, you know, pro-choice, pro-life, fetal rights, maternal rights, women's rights, etc., um, it's, it's much more complicated because it, it sort of is the most basic thing is that in our tradition, Jewish law prioritizes the life of the pregnant woman over the life of the fetus. I think this is the easiest way to explain it, where the pregnancy critically endangers her physical health or her maternal health. And then at that point, it's not just that it's, whether it's allowed, it would be considered mandated. Okay, so that's that's one way to look at it, but it's not uh, it's not grounded in the same way in terms of women, you know, the rights that we have. It's grounded in what is the responsibility to ensuring that the woman's life and health. And again, it was it was only in um, the 18th century that we saw one of the rabbinic uh, individuals, Rabbi Emden who, a blessed memory, who was approached, who basically expanded the idea of saying if a woman is in, like, deep, great pain, great need, he had allowed uh, an abortion to take place where a woman was um, facing having a, a child from an illicit relationship. And in the modern era, we've seen, again, that's what I've said, where women have faced, faced terrible, terrible, and, and, and they and their husband have, and their partner have faced just terrible uh, news of carrying children with terrible, uh, whether it's, it's uh, in the 1960s, it was Tay-Sachs, which caused the child horrific pain, horrific suffering, horrific suffering for the parents to watch this, or other um, types of um, genetically anonymous experiences. So that, again, it's the emotional issue that's tied in with the physical issue, and therefore, the analysis is very different. The problem is, is that if you're an Orthodox woman and you live in a state which has barred abortion uh, after six weeks or after 15 weeks. Oh, let, me, let me jump in. You, let, me, let me jump in, Adina, please. Just to remind people that if you're just tuning in, our guest today is Rabbanit Adina Berkowitz, who we are talking about. What Jewish law and Jewish thought says about abortion, the topic which has become very hot with the, the leak of from the decision from SCOTUS to overturn Roe v. Wade, there is an adage, Dina de Malhusa Dina, the law of the land is Torah, meaning, for example, there is a law in this country that you cannot go through a red light. So therefore, a person is violating Jewish law if they drive through a red light. There are 26 states in this country, that's more, in, more than half, barely, that have some kind of law, however old they are. The law in Michigan was written in 1931 that makes abortion a crime. And so what about the adage of the law of the land? So somebody in Michigan would be violating the law. New York does not have such a law, and therefore... In New York, it's not a violation. So what do we do about the law of the land is, the, is Torah, Adina Berkowitz? Uh, well, that's, that's why people are so concerned with it. Because even by the standard of the Supreme Court from years ago, where they said certain laws meant to uh, 
provide guidelines for abortion are going to be illegal if they also put an undue burden on a woman. So this is definitely putting an undue burden on us because it's a challenge to our ability to practice our religion is guaranteed under the Constitution. So that that, that is primarily the reason why um, that even Orthodox Jews have said, you know, if it's a choice between A or B, then we have to take B. We, we have to support the idea that the state has really very limited ability to come in and regulate this, or certainly to ban it or to set up onerous regulations, because it could end up that we'll be violating halakha. We will not be able to practice our religion. So that that, that is one of the deep problems here. Um, and that, that is, that's an issue that could face uh, observant Jews who live in Texas or live in one of the other states. Um, that, you know, what do you do about a law that's passed that is, is causing us to be hardship? I mean, on a completely, you know, uh, in, in like a completely different uh, arena. Look at how uh, Orthodox Jews, observant Jews, in the early part of the tw- late 19th century, early 20th century, when so many came here, and you had blue laws. Uh, and you would be fine. If you, instead of opening on, because you couldn't uh, have your business open on Saturday, it was open on Sunday. Eventually, it was struck down as unconstitutional because it's an infringement of just someone's ability to, not just the free trade, but if you couldn't, you, what do you mean I'm going to be fine for opening on Sunday? I can't work on Saturday. So that is definitely a consideration that goes into how these laws are crafted, meaning I understand or someone who's coming from a fundamentalist approach or Catholics who believe that life begins at conception. I understand the deep pain they have. The question, though, is, is that coming from our tradition, which is nuanced and views it differently, then, my, then I would not be able to be fulfilling the precepts of how our faith approaches this issue, and that's the problem. Okay, that's amazing. Um, okay, so you mentioned before that the mother's life is paramount of all. So there was a, to- a term which was coined, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago, and I didn't, I didn't hear it before that. And it was the, the term is late-term abortion. The concept of late-term abortion is actually discussed in the Mishnah. And could you sh- uh, maybe shed a, a couple of seconds on that, please, Adina? Right. So that I, I had referenced it before, that it talks about a woman who's in difficult labor, that literally, it's a very graphic Mishnah in Ohalot that, that talks about the fact that literally the, you know, you could dismember, uh, you could mem- dismember the, the fetus. But once it's, it's sort of its head is, is crowning, once it's, you know, it's sort of entering, uh, the world, then you can't, how do you choose between, you're, you'd have to choose between one life over another. That, so that in its like purest form, that's what it says. The, but the issue, the issue that we, the way it, it plays out is that, you know, today, if it's a choice between the two, you could be in a very religious hospital in Israel. You know, if you have the woman there and she's hemorrhaging, they're, they're going to try to save her. You know, that's, it's a, it's a different, it's a different, um, it's a different approach. And, and it's, the, you know, the late-term abortion, uh, when that came up in the Senate and it, it's come up in different states, et cetera, is very complicated because certainly, you know, when we look at from the standpoint, it, it happened, it was in the media some, some time ago about what happens if, quote, unquote, there's like a failed abortion and the baby is born. You're just going to leave it on the table, like to die, cover it? And, and that's, of course not. That We view that as infanticide. So that, but the issue is, is that is a woman coming in to have a late-term abortion because she she is hemorrhaging, she's going to die. So that's exactly what the rabbi said: is that in the sort of the conflict between like mother and child, so to speak, we look at the woman who is here, who is living, and our obligation is to her. But it's that's very different than sort of broader, you know, quote unquote legalized abortion on demand where they're not asking you like why you're coming in and even at a later period of time 
it's legal up to a point. It's obviously also one of the, I think, the other animating issues here is that the technology has also changed uh, in the almost 50 years since Roe v. Wade because now you have babies that are born at 25 weeks, 26 weeks, that seem fine. So that it makes the idea of, like, uh, abortion at that latter stage more complicated. American, the polling that has been done shows, for example, in the country, there's like humanity, overwhelming support to really be able to do what they, uh, under the Constitution, as, as Roe explained it, have the right to privacy and the ability to make this decision during that first trimester. It gets more complicated as most people see it, the latter you get. And the question then is, do you need, in Jewish law, it's you need a very good reason to end that pregnancy. In American law, it's different. Um, and the issue is when can the state kind of step in and say, you know, we have the obligation to regulate also the ability to live outside the womb, viability. That's why it's so complicated. And that's why even I think Orthodox Jews are very concerned because if it goes, if it ends up that Roe v. Wade is uh, reversed, it then gets thrown back to the states. In New York, where I'm from, it's not going to affect anybody, but it could affect. Uh, religious Jews who live in states where it's, it's going to be banned, and those bans are going to come up directly on the opposite end of where our tradition looks at this uh, thorny issue. Okay, perfect. Again, our guest today is Rabbi Neet Adina Berkowitz. We're talking about what Jewish law and philosophy says about abortion. Okay, so you said the mother's life, if it's endangered, then the abortion wouldn't maybe condoned. And, of course, let me just iterate. We're talking general. We're talking theory. If anybody has a question about something, if they are actually thinking about this, they need to go talk to an expert rabbi in the situation because every case is different. We can't just blanketly say you can do this in every situation. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as every situation. Each situation is unique. Given that caveat, this woman has a propensity to uh, postpartum depression. Is Tell us about, there's a chance that she might commit suicide if she has a kid. It will affect her mental health and she'll be, tell, tell us about the mental health issue then, uh, Adina. Right. So it has come up, a woman who's like, who is so prone to suicide, a woman who has been raped, a woman who is it's a victim of of incest um so that the definitely the the um the, i would say the issue is is that the woman's life health and well-being comes first and if and the rabbis are actually looking at this based on the information like the medical information and the psychological information they have and how the woman is you know, what her pain is, so that it's, it's not necessarily a right to privacy or right of ownership of one's body, but it's rather the well-being of the woman that is paramount, and that it's, it's somewhat of a balancing act, and we've seen it, for example, uh, I'll tell you in terms of technology, it's, it's gotten less complicated today because they've done a better job of, in terms of women who have fertility treatments, but you know, years ago, you have a lot of, um, through like in vitro, et cetera, it, um, it ended up that there were multi-fetal pregnancies. And the question was, what are the risks for women of carrying so many fetuses to term? Because it could affect their health, well-being. It could cause all of them to die. So the question was, could the doctors, was it halachically permissible to reduce the number of fetuses by aborting some to allow others to be born? So that was, that's been um, very, that was very interesting. And the justification in most cases is really based on the health risk to the woman. That is, that is the point. If she is living, she is paramount. That is overwhelmingly how the rabbis tend to look at this. Um, and as you said, it's a case by case because every case can be, can be, um, you know, can be uh, seen as different. It, it's, it's gotten even more complicated because, you know, what happens with new technology um, where uh, you can find out 
the sex of the embryo, and then you want to decide which ones to implant. Are you allowed to, to pick the sex, et cetera? So there, there are other issues um, that come, come about. But, um, again, um, what we see in our tradition is that while a fetus is not viewed from conception fully as a person, Jewish tradition definitely stops short of a complete dis- um, dismissal of the value problem in ending that potential uh, uh, that potentiality. Overwhelmingly, really, what we see is that the primary concern lies with woman. She exists. Her voice and her needs must be heard. And, and it's her life, no matter how slim even her chances of survival are, and her well-being and her mental health come first. Okay. And that is the standard that, um, that the rabbis use when looking at this very difficult topic. Okay, terrific. Without getting too technical, is there any difference? Used to be abortions were done surgically. Now they're done medically with the uh, use of uh, uh, aborting drugs. Is there any difference in halacha that one may be more lenient than the other? Well, it could be if you take like a morning after pill because the fetus, as we've seen, is defined during the first 40 days as near water. So uh, it's, you know, it's a completely, you know, it's, it's different. You know, again, you know, there's a pronatal view, obviously, in our tradition, a very high value that is put on, on having children. But it could be a situation where, you know, a, a woman finds, you know, is concerned she's maybe pregnant and she has. She has uh, the measles. She's been taking certain medication that could result in terrible, terrible problems um, that, uh, if she were to be pregnant. So that, again, you see it's, 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 those, it's those considerations that come into play. But obviously, we don't, you know, Judaism does not ban contraception either. In other words, maybe people seek out rabbinic uh, opinions as to, you know, if they can, but it's not, if they can, it's not, as you find in other um, faith communities, that there's a ban on it. Judaism, what we see within the Orthodox community, is there's an understanding sometimes of why a person would need it. So it would be the same thing here, but it's much less of a conundrum of a morning after pill versus once, you know, you're, you're pay, you know, you're even in the, the you know, the, the, the 12th week uh, and, and you start hearing heartbeats. So, um... Okay, understood. Okay, that is, we are out of time. This is a, a, a very important topic, and I encourage people to investigate further, and this should be just a, a jumping-off point. And again, if you have any specific questions, go ask your local authoritative rabbi of what you should do in your specific interest. We want to thank you so much, Rabbi Nita Dina Berkowitz, for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break and be right back. We've got Dan and Nessel coming up next. Don't go away. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have up next a pre-recorded press conference with the Attorney General for the State of Michigan discussing what would be were Roe v. Wade to be overturned and the ramifications for the state of Michigan. Let's listen in. This broke yesterday, um, unprecedented for a decision to be uh, released before it finalized. Uh, so that's something that in my career I've never seen before. Um, normally, uh, the court is so tight-lipped that you never even have an inkling as to what the court is going to do or what the decision is going to be. Uh, until literally the very second that it's released. Um, But that being the case, uh, it appears as though the United States Supreme Court has confirmed that uh, this is authentic, uh, what Politico um, actually released last night. And um, I will say it's surprising that it leaked, but 
the decision in and of itself is not a surprise, nor, nor should it be a surprise to anyone. Um, I remember vividly uh, being at the first Women's March in Michigan um, in January of 2017, and uh, I gave a speech at that event, so did Governor Whitmer, uh, so did many other um, people who either were then or are now in elected office in Michigan, uh, and said that plainly with, with Trump about to take office, and knowing that he had uh, a very significant litmus test in order to make the shortlist for nominees, um, we had a situation at that time, you might recall, where Scalia's seat had gone unfilled. Uh, and so that was going to be a seat that he was going to be able to fill it immediately, since he then had the, you know, the Senate was a majority Republican. Um, and knowing that there were three other justices that were in their 80s at that time, uh, Stephen Breyer, uh, you know, Justice Kennedy, uh, Justice Ginsburg, and that we were likely to see a dynamic shift in the court, uh, and that those new uh, justices who would become members of the court during the course of the Trump administration were certain to add the necessary votes to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade entirely. And so with the swearing in of Justice Kavanaugh, they then had a majority uh, of justices who believed that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. And then when you added Amy Coney Barrett after that, now you had basically a supermajority of justices. Uh, so it was clear, irrespective of which way uh, Roberts was going to go on this, that you were going to have a majority of justices that could overturn Roe. That being the case, it seemed inevitable that it would happen this year. And why? Because, of course, the, the Dobbs case, that was a specific question, uh, you know, request that was being made by many of the states, uh, by, uh, certainly by Mississippi, but then in addition to that, many other states that filed amici on their behalf. And then we saw that there was no action taken to, uh, to stop the Texas law from being enacted. Uh, which is a very draconian law that outlawed abortion uh, in uh, in the state of Texas, and even weirdly allowed anyone to have standing to uh, be able to sue someone who in any way, shape, or form participated in an abortion. So for all intents and purposes, no abortions permitted in the state of Texas. So it seemed very clear that since they didn't even stay that case, that they were headed in this direction. So while it's a surprise that it's leaked in the manner that it has, the, the result is not a surprise. The only difference uh, is that this is not official today, and it won't be official uh, until uh, it is formally released by uh, by the court, and that's generally expected to be in you know mid to late June, uh, towards the end of of you know their session year. But with that being the case, I, I sort of expect this to be expedited at this point. I'm sure they're not going to want just this hanging around. So I imagine it'll come out earlier than was otherwise expected. I'm sure some of you are wondering, well, could this could this change? Uh, and, and could we see something different? You know, theoretically, of course, that's true. It's not a final uh, version. We don't know exactly where the votes are. We only know that this case was assigned to be authored by Justice Alito because he was in the majority, meaning there were at least five votes to completely overturn Roe v. Wade. And so whether or not those numbers are going to change, uh, I think it's evident that we will see the, the formal and express overturning of the 1973 seminal Supreme Court decision that legalized uh, abortion nationwide in Michigan. Now, what will that mean for us here in Michigan? Well, it's very simple. Uh, all of these issues will be thrown back to the states. So it will be uh, incumbent upon each and every individual state to make the decision as to what is legal and what is not legal in regard to the matter of abortion. So what will happen in Michigan? Well, Michigan is one of these states that has uh, what we call a trigger law. And that law is MCL 750.14. Um, and what that means is that abortion is not just illegal, it's a crime. It's not just uh, something that someone can sue over civilly. People can go to jail or prison for this. And I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going I'm to read uh, MCL 750.14 so everyone knows and understands the language. Um, uh, it indicates that... Um, well, I guess I don't have the entire thing, but it has any person to willfully, who willfully administers any pregnant woman, uh, any medicine, drug, substance, or thing, whatever, or employ any instrument or other means, whatever, with intent thereby to procure the miscarriage of any such woman, unless the same shall have been necessary to preserve the life of such woman. Um, and then the language goes on. And it's, it's, so it is a felony offense. Because there's not a specified penalty, there is another statute um, that for those types uh, of offenses that aren't otherwise specifically, um, you know, there's not a specific connotation for uh, a penalty. It's it's a four-year felony offense, meaning a person can go to the Michigan Department of Corrections for up to four years in prison for that. 
Uh, now, in terms of uh, who gets prosecuted, basically, we there there has been case law developed, basically indicating that it is uh, you know a physician or whoever the person is that performs the procedure. Um, and generally speaking, the way that it's operated prior to Roe, and remember when Roe um, came into being in 1973, it superseded this law. It rendered it unenforceable. It was never removed from the books. It was never repealed, which is why it still exists, uh, but it just couldn't be enforced anymore because of Roe v. Wade. And when, it's not if now, but when Roe v. Wade uh, falls on whatever day this is formally released by the United States Supreme Court, MCL 750.14 will spring back into effect. And so what does that mean? It means that prosecutors in all 83 counties could prosecute the criminal offense of abortion. They could prosecute um, a person who performs an abortion. And I think the plain language of this, which again, it's a 1931 law, I would argue that it's possible for a prosecutor to, uh, to interpret this as to actually prosecute um, a woman who is attempting to self-abort if she is the one who performs the procedure or she's the one who takes the medication. And of course, things have changed since 1931. Um, many women use uh, abortion medication in order to have abortions. So I, I do think that one could argue via the plain language of the law that if you're the one procuring the medication and you're the one who is administering the medication, that the woman herself could potentially be prosecuted. Again, that's not what was traditionally done. But what we did see happen a lot is that you would have a prosecution against a physician or some other medical provider or even a third party who wasn't a medical provider who would perform the abortion pre-Roe. Uh, and then if the woman who had the abortion refused to cooperate, she could be held in contempt of court. So you did see cases where women were being held in jail, uh, either because they refused to testify or they didn't show up when they were subpoenaed. Um, and so that has happened in Michigan before. Whether prosecutors who wish to enforce this law will enforce it in a manner where they're just prosecuting the person, uh, you know, a medical provider, for instance, uh, or they choose to prosecute women who have abortions, that'll that'll remain to be seen whether or not that can happen. You know, and it also calls into question many other things I will say about this particular law. Firstly, um, you know, will it will it create a scenario where if a woman has self-aborted and she seeks medical care after that, will the doctor, usually there's doctor-patient you know, confidentiality, but because this is a criminal offense, will the doctor then have to report that to law enforcement? Um, and then there's other questions, right? Like if a, if a woman um, goes out of state and uh, procures abortion medication and brings it in state and then technically administers the medication to herself in Michigan, you know, is there a charge there? Um, is somebody who brings in abortion medication into the state, can they be charged? I mean, these are all questions that I, I think people will have um, there is the, you know, there's no exception for rape. There is no exception for incest. There is um, a provision that says, again, unless same shall have been necessary to preserve the life of such woman. But the way that this is drafted, uh, my, my opinion is that that's an affirmative defense for a physician. So for instance, what I see happening is for uh, prosecutors that want to bring these cases, they, they could bring the case when they find out that there's been an abortion. Uh, and then it would be up to the doctor uh, or the physician or whoever the abortion provider is to use as a, an affirmative defense, to, much like you would with, with a self-defense case. You know, yes, the abortion happened and now it goes, it, now the burden shifts to the doctor or the physician or the abortion provider to say, um, yes, I performed the abortion. However, it was necessary to save the life of the mother. And then they'll, it, you know, basically it could be a contest of, of experts because you'll have to say, well, no, I mean, it, it's not just that this woman could have been uh, seriously injured or harmed. Um, or that there was some other medical emergency, you, you would have to actually show that she, the woman was going to die or it would still be a crime. Uh, and that is really concerning to me. People have abortions for, for all kinds of reasons and many of them are medically necessary, but I think that this will have the kind of chilling effect that doctors just simply will not perform this procedure really under any set of circumstances because they don't wanna get dragged in the court. They don't want to face the possibility of being prosecuted uh, and the possibility of going to jail or prison. So I think that, that honestly, even under very serious sets of circumstances, you'll have doctors that really have to violate their Hippocratic oaths and just you know, say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I understand you have, for instance, an epitopic uh, pregnancy and it's the, you know, there's no viable uh, child, right? There's no, the embryo is not viable, will never become uh, viable, will never be born alive. Um, and the woman could die, but if we know that she might not, if it's only a, there's a possibility that she's gonna die, well then again, if you're that doctor, do you really wanna take that chance 
and, and risk losing your medical license uh, and, and risk going to prison. And of course, I think for a lot of people who are abortion providers, they, some, their insurance carriers will drop them. And I imagine that that will be um, something that is asked right by the insurance carrier, do you prefer, you know, perform abortions? And if the answer is yes, I think a lot of insurance carriers are just going to say, well, then we're not going to insure you under those circumstances. So what I see happening is just basically not having any abortion providers at all in the state of Michigan. And my, my grave concern is that you are going to have women who are going to die for a number of different reasons. Um, you know, either because they'll be so desperate that they will try to self-abort. Uh, and of course, we know that's a reason why many women pre-Roe um, were harmed uh, or, you know, or died. From those procedures. You might have uh, illegal third parties that are not uh, certified to perform an abortion who will start to perform these abortions underground again uh, and in a, an environment that's not safe, uh, that's not sanitary, and where you have somebody who's not a medical professional who's trained and knows what they're doing and therefore could cause women to be uh, severely harmed or, or die. Um, and, uh, you know, there are just a, a, a litany of reasons why I believe that for somebody like myself, who believes it's my job to protect the health, safety, and well-being of the 2.2 million women of reproductive age in the state of Michigan, that I will not enforce this law because I think it will lead to further harm and further death of women in our state. Uh, and that is something that I, I made very clear when I ran for this office. I actually did a commercial, you could pull it up in 2018, that was on um, you know, social media, where I said I was not going to enforce this law when Roe was overturned um, because again, it, you know, you, you didn't have to have a, you know, uh, a magic, uh, you know, crystal ball to see what was coming in the future. So I said, when that happens, I'm not going to enforce this law. And of course, now I've actually been sued by Planned Parenthood, um, and uh, I believe what they're trying to get me to do is to stipulate to the fact that uh, I'm not going to enforce this law. I've already said I'm not going to enforce the law, and nor will I defend the law. I said I wouldn't use the resources of my office to defend this law, which I believe to be unconstitutional, and which of course there is a, uh, a lawsuit that the governor's filed where she's indicated that this law she believes is unconstitutional. In that case, uh, as many of you know, uh, she's brought that case against multiple county prosecutors uh, to try to enjoin them from prosecuting uh, MCL 750.14 once Roe v. Wade is overturned. Uh, and I know that she's requesting what we call certification of the question which means that it would go immediately right to the uh, right to the Michigan Supreme Court because her claims are made under uh, state law, or really under the state constitution. And she, her claims are that uh, under the Equal Protection Clause of the Michigan Constitution and the Due Process Clause of the Michigan Constitution, that um, 750.14 uh, violates those and is uh, is therefore unconstitutional and should be stricken. Uh, so, you know, that's that matter is pending. Um, and, you know, with that, I, I guess I can take any questions. I, uh, we obviously also have, I should say, the ballot proposal that is out there right now, the Reproductive Freedom for All uh, ballot proposal. Uh, my understanding is it needs 425,000 signatures by July 1st, um, after which time the legislature has 60 days to decide whether or not to pass it, assuming that they're not going to pass it, it would then go on the November ballot. And if it passes, uh, then 750.14 will be unenforceable again in Michigan because we will we will have as a constitutional provision uh, that you know these reproductive rights, including the right to abortion, and that would supersede this statute um, 750.14. So that is possible, uh, and again, it's also possible that in the governor's case, the um, the Michigan Supreme Court could rule that um, this statute is unconstitutional. Otherwise, to repeal it, you would need to have obviously a majority uh, of legislators, both in the House and Senate. And then, you know, the governor has indicated she would simply sign it. So it's a bare majority uh, for that to be passed. It's not a constitutional provision. It's just a statute. It could be changed at any time if you had uh, folks in the state House, state Senate, and the governor's office that were willing to do that. So I think that's all the preliminary stuff. We all know there's an opiate epidemic. But Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 
800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shulton, here you're listening to the Jewish Hour. The point I wanted to mention uh, before I get into my monologue, hopefully I have enough time. I, uh, my wife's brother was married to a woman who unfortunately passed away, uh, not of COVID, but during COVID, and we were excluded from any type of participation in the funeral. She lived in Tzfat, northern Israel, in the Galilee, overlooking the Kinneret, the uh, Lake Tiberias, Lake of the Galilee. She organized a, she, she created an organization which convinced women that they should have their babies. And very often what she was dealing with was people that they needed support. They needed to have somebody who told them they were from poor neighborhoods and their boyfriends were didn't have proper jobs or maybe their boyfriends weren't around anymore once they got pregnant and they felt they felt hopeless and heard what she did and it was tremendous there was uh she convinced women to have their their babies and that her organization she took personal responsibility I will support you and your babies and uh, when she passed away, it says there were there were people who were like 25-year-olds that came to the funeral and said, I'm here because of your mom. She she convinced my mother not to abort me. It's, it's an amazing thing. So in the portion of the week, let's change tone, please. The, this is too heavy. In the portion of the week, <laughs> we're going to continue with the heaviness. The, which is Mr. in Leviticus chapter 21. So there is a commandment not to desecrate God's name. And desecrating God's name would mean doing something where people would say, oh, look at those Jews. Look how those people are acting. So this is, this is one of the things that totally, um, <laughs> I used to tell my kids that um, we would go shopping that we had two rules before they got out of the car. No quiz and no chilol Hashem. Quiz meant, can we get this? Can we get that? And I would, not to run in the store, run in stores like a bunch of wild animals, but to, you know, and people would come up and say, your children are so beautifully behaved and it's so nice to see. And that's called a kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, doing something that people say, why can't you act like those Jews do? That's a wonderful thing. So it's a, just a matter of being mindfulness, and I really wanted to talk a whole lot more, but I have unfortunately run out of time, and we have a great story, and I want to tell that. So don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Why go to a hospital get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. It's at this point that we talk about uh, supporting this radio station and supporting this radio program, which has been on air for 25, no, it's 28 years that we're on air. So uh, you know the the drill. The contributions can be made at RabbiFinman.com. And we need your help to keep us stay afloat. So go to RabbiFinman.com, or if you're there, wait for the couple of minutes that's left, uh, three minutes that's remaining of the show, 
and uh, make a donation. Could be a small donation, could be a big donation. It's all good. It all goes right into the kitty and helps pay for things. Would you like to send that donation via regular mail or maybe drop it off someplace? Well, that's easy to do. The Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48237. Story involves the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, whose yurtzeit was celebrated last week. He would had he had a very fancy coach, and he would drive through rides to the countryside in his coach to the betterment of his health. He died young of, of adults' onset uh, diabetes at the age of 49. It once happened that he stopped at a certain farmhouse, and he went in. And he saw some kids playing on the floor, and he asked, where's your mommy? She said, she went out to do shopping or whatever. I said, where's your dad? He went to work. He said, let's play a game. I said, okay. Do you have a tillum? Do you have a psalms? And he, they said, yeah, we have a psalms. And he said, let's go get it. And they sat there, and they said psalms. In the meantime, the, the woman came home. She came through, like, the back door, and she saw the Rebbe sitting on the floor, with her kids saying Tillam, she was so, the expression in Yiddish is, they're shrocking. She was so shaken. She didn't know, what's going on? And then the Rebbe closed the book, and he was about to leave. He's talking to the kids a little bit. She's staying in the, in the kitchen watching what's going on. And he said, you know what? Let's play the game some more. And they sat and they said Psalms more. Okay? Saying Psalms is a great way for... for uh, for getting God's attention. I recommend it. The husband didn't come home, and this woman was frantic. Finally, around midnight, she hears a knock at the door. Bang, bang, bang. Her husband comes in. He's like cut and bruised and whatnot. And she says, what happened? And she said, I went to go collect money from a certain peasant who owned me money. And he went into the barn and said, I'll pay you in wheat, which is what it's a normal thing back then. And he said, when they got in, he slammed the door and said, I'm not going to pay you. I'm going to kill you. And he said, where's my axe? And he said he couldn't find the axe. And he said, I'm going to go into the house and get my axe. In the meantime, he took some some ropes and stuff, and he tied the guy up and went into the house. In the meantime, the woman of the house walked in, the wife came into the barn and set the guy free and said, get out, but don't just go hide and like the hay, and they're like the don't, because he'll he'll come after you, and don't for sure if you catch it, don't say anything that he that I did this because he'll kill me too. And he went and he hid. The farmer realized that his uh, guy got loose, and it's like serious trouble. He took his axe and ran after him, and he's panting, 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 and he stopped right where this person was hiding, and he kept on running. And then finally, this person ran, I don't remember his name even, waited till it got dark and made his way back home. And it was at that that they realized that the Rebbe was saying Tillam with the kids the first time when the husband was, at the time, the husband was locked in the barn. And the second time he was saying the Psalms was when the man was standing right next to him with an axe ready to kill him, but the guy didn't know. That's going to do it. We hope it's a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope it's a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.